0: one of the last important pieces of advice that the Buddha gave before he died, he gave this advice to all of those around him. You are the light, you are the refuge, there is no place to take refuge but yourself. And these words are often a reminder to me when I hear them, because we can hear them quite often during the teachings, that the Seeds of Awakening are within this very heart, this very mind and they're not to be found outside in someone else's experience or even in books, though they give us a lot of support, but to see them, to realize them, to nurture them in our very hearts and minds. Tonight I'd like to speak about the Seven Factors of Awakening. Or the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are the seeds of awakening that are within our own possible experience. A few years ago when I was practicing in Asia, there was a renewed sense of ardency, a renewed willingness to go through whatever needed to be gone through to access deeper layers of delusion and greed and hatred and to allow them to be known and purified so that they could be uh, more of them could be uprooted from the mind and heart stream. And so when I went to our teacher, Seda Upandita, I told him about this that I was here to do some more cleaning of the heart, some more inner cleaning. And he said something that continues to remind me and to um, be an inspiration to me. He said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice, to invest everything you have. And he wasn't talking about material, my material Uh, whatever I have in my life, but more talking about the spiritual wealth that is within my own heart and whatever I could know so far until that point, whatever has been developed to that point. So investing these qualities to bring forth these qualities already in the mindstream, that would be a strength for uprooting more of what holds back that um, complete awakening of the heart, of the mind. So those qualities are the seven factors of awakening and they're gradually being developed here. They're also being developed in our lives but here we pay close attention to them. The silence, the seclusion, the reminders to be gently continuous, these are all nourishing, nurturing, helping us, supporting us to keep our commitment going. We may articulate that commitment um, in a different way than I just articulated. Each one of you has a different way of saying the same thing. But it all comes down to really awakening our hearts so we can live more clearly, more compassionately, in a way that can be of greater service to one another. So these seven factors, and I'll repeat them as I go along, are mindfulness. This is the first one, the one that heads all the others. Investigation, effort, and joyful interest. And then there's calm, concentration, and equanimity. These are seven, and I'll speak, speak briefly about each one. So the knowledge of these has always been a source of empowerment for my own practice and for what I see in other people's practice. Just to know how they're developed, that they're being developed, and that each one uh, strengthens the others as well. Just to understand this is a great confidence-building empowerment for each one of us. These are the causes and conditions that contribute to full awakening, to complete awakening. So we should understand and, un- and know these causes and conditions that are in our very hearts and minds. So it's said that when there is uh, a steady, relaxed, clear, mindful awareness. And that is applied to the most obvious changing momentary experience, whether it be a bodily sensation or the feeling of neutral or pleasant or unpleasant. Or it could be mindfulness of the mind, which is mindfulness of knowing itself or mindfulness of any of the objects of the mind, the Dhammas of the mind, like the Five Hindrances, the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors. These are also all included in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness or awareness can be on any one of those subjects or objects. And when it's clear, when it's steady, continuous, then this results in the maturing of all of the factors of enlightenment. Whether we're sitting, walking, standing, or lying down, or any postures in between. The Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, that means with continuity, The seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. So really, all it takes is being really mindful, clear, continuous, and the rest all come about. Manindra used to say um, that if mindfulness is there, mindfulness is like the mother, and all the others come around. So there's always been a reassuring promise to me that this is possible, and not just a promise, but the experience to see that it's so, that these factors continue to be strengthened through mindful, just mindful awareness. So in the numerical discourses, I want to point out how the Buddha connects this development of the seven factors to liberating knowledge. He says, supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The answer would be the seven factors of enlightenment. This, These are the nutriments. So, there are great natural resources within us to be discovered, to be mined, to be strengthened. Mindfulness is activating them all the time, bringing them forth with greater strength. When there is this gentle, patient effort, and we're not pushing, nor we're not too lazy about our practice, the factors become more and more noticeable very clear to our own experience. Manindra would always say, your only job is to be mindful. When he would think I was depending on him, he would say, I can't do it for you. You have to do it by yourself. And he has this way of saying, the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve yours. You know, <laughs> Don't depend on me. <laughs> It's sort of interesting that teachers in this tradition don't want to be gurus, including Steve and I. Um, it's always like turning it back, turning it back to, you have to do the work. We can't do it for you. I remember, I've often told this story to some of you. I remember going to Sayadaw Upandita. I was really happy to see him after probably four or five years I hadn't seen him, so I went to visit him in Oregon when I was there and um, I was so happy to see him a little bit exuberant and he came down the stairs and I wasn't very calm and I was saying, <laughs> I'm so happy to see you Sayadawgyi," which means you know, beloved Sayadaw, I'm so happy to see you and he said something, you know, in Burmese, I didn't know what he said so we had an exchange, and then later on, um, the translator said, do you want to know what he said? And I said, <laughs> I don't know. I think so. <laughs> and, and he said, Sejaoji said, I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> I'm here to make you mindful, because that's what's going to liberate you, <laughs> not the fact that I'm you know, making you happy. So it's really important to understand that we we have to do the work, and through mindfulness, all these factors come about. They're cultivated by many traditions, by many tribal and spiritual traditions, not only through the Buddhist teaching. We can appreciate that when we look at the different uh, traditions that we're all exposed to because this is such a connecting world in a way, in this electronic age that we live in. I'm always very interested in the different traditions and what they're practicing and what they understand through their hardships in life and through their own practice. So the Buddha pointed these seven factors out so clearly, but they're also seen in other places. So for example, There are many um, traditions, tribal traditions of the uh, South Pacific Islanders, and we are exposed to them living in Hawaii. They're beautiful people, of course. They teach us a lot by their slowness, mostly. (laughs) And, um, And just the way they kind of live their lives so connected with nature. Well, they have a, a tribe of Samoa in Hawaii, and they're known to be very fierce warriors. They're the the biggest and the most muscular of all the South Pacific Islanders that I know of, and uh, they really all of the South Pacific Islanders really inspire me. But the the Samoans are like the warriors of them all, and. I I once met up with one, and they say, you know, we have these kind of um, non-politically correct stories in Hawaii a lot. (laughs) Because we, we joke around with each other in a beloved way, in an endearing way. And one of the things we say in Hawaii is, you never want to be in a building or a street or a place alone with a Samoan. But one day I ended up in a museum. And the only other person there was a Samoan, but luckily his daughter was there with him, <laughs> young little girl, and it it made me very, um, it made him very approachable. So this is a story about recognizing the qualities of the seven factors in this person. It was a very hot day; it was midday, and even breathing made you perspire. So. <laughs> I just, I went into one of these museums that, I wouldn't have gone into this museum normally because it had an exposition of tattoo art. And, uh, you know, we see it quite a bit around now. I mean, I see it in practically all my children and one of my grandchildren already. So, it's not that unusual now. But then, about 20 years ago, It was still just starting to break out in the general populace and so um, I started going through the aisles and looking at these incredible photos of people with tattoo art in different parts of their body and just the, the beautiful artwork actually on different parts of their body. And some of the parts were a- actually very interesting to see that, oh, there could be a tattoo there, too. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. So <laughs> so was going around the aisles, and then I saw about as far from here to the doorway there a great giant man, about 6 foot 5 or so, about 250 pounds and I saw that the man was filled with tattoos from here from his neck down to his ankles and so in Hawaii we know about this there, are, there were at that time a few of the Pacific Islanders who would be like totally tattooed or there were certain tattoo marks that you know they were part of some kind of royalty, some kind of lineage You could recognize it by seeing it but I couldn't describe it to you. So um, here were all these photos and here was this you know big warrior looking guy and I thought well he's much more interesting than the picture and he had a little girl with him so I felt like I could approach. So I approached him and he was warrior looking but his eyes were very kind so I asked him a few questions and um, I saw that he had these tattoos on all over his body because he was wearing that open surfing shirt and shorts. But the markings on his body were some were still red and raised and pulsing. You know, you could you could just see that it just happened not too long ago that he was tattooed. So I asked him if he could tell me a little bit about it. And he said that he was a son of a chieftain. And uh, the markings on his body were through an initiation that he had gone through. Uh, He needed to go through that initiation to inherit the role of chieftain from his father. It was a sacred initiation, he said. If he didn't go through it, The lineage would not continue and there would be no leader of that particular major tribe of Samoa. And he told me that they began at dawn. And this story was very much like meditating in a retreat. He began at dawn and he went through to the end of the day and there were only some breaks. Most of the day. There were elders of the tribe working on him, putting the tattoos on different places of his body simultaneously. How they did it in those um, days, and maybe they probably still do, is they, t- they took shark's teeth, known to be extremely sharp, and they dipped them in the soot of the of a blackened tree, known to, when it goes through the skin, It stays there very, very dark for very long periods of time. So the elders did the tattooing in this hut in the middle of the village. And the uh, members of the village would sit around and take turns all day long chanting and giving water to him and to giving food to the elders who were tattooing him. He said that there were many times he wanted to yell, stop, because every time he said, the pain, I, re- I put down the, the, um, his quote right afterwards. So it's pretty much what he said. The pain was like a burning sensation, which builds and builds with every tap. Does it sound familiar to your <laughs> sitting <in> practice? <laughs> and he said that. He didn't know whether he could continue, but he had to because there wouldn't be um, someone else to continue the lineage. And if he didn't continue, it would bring shame to his whole tribe. And he was the obvious. He looked very kingly and, uh, you know, very kind as well. He said that when he began the process, he was a boy, but when he finished the process, he was a man and he spoke in a very spiritually matured way. As he spoke, I recognized in him his effort to persevere. You know, he, I'm telling you this story shortly, but he gave me a lengthened version of it. His, his effort to stay on, to persevere. I don't think he was calm all the time, but when he told me the story, he was calm. There was tranquility in his voice, in his bodily demeanor. There was some concentration. I could tell just by him telling the story. It was very clear. His mind was coming, very coming together, very orderly, in order to tell me the story. And there was a lot of spaciousness and balance in his mind. He didn't say these things, but really, I could sense them from him. I appreciated the different ways that we could develop these factors in our lives. Certainly, we develop them through going through life, through being with our family of origin uh, and with our children, raising our children, being with our grandchildren, all the things we go through, finishing degrees and Um, even balancing the checkbook and trying to pay the bills and build a house and all those kinds of things. We develop a lot of these qualities already, so it doesn't mean just sitting on the cushion. So each one of these supports the others. Each one of these deepens the others. We don't necessarily develop them in a linear way, although mindfulness is a one of the biggest factors of them all, that links them all, develops them all, and balances them all, it is said. So when I went to uh, Sayada Upandita and he said, you must be willing to invest everything, I knew right away that these are whatever qualities were already, to that point, developed. And that I was willing to give myself to it wholeheartedly. So this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware of what's being developed in your practice, to really recognize them. Here we talk a lot about the hindrances, because that's what first comes up. But a lot of the times, you can see equanimity is already there. There's mindfulness, of course. You can tell when concentration is there, when there's a joyful kind of interest, calm all of these things you may be able to notice already so when you feel when you feel that you can recognize them more it empowers you you have a healing kind of confidence in your own practice there's not a sense that oh i have to get it from someone else or from a teaching that's in a book of course it those are supportive things but It's really, you come to know that it's really all within the seeds within our very own heart and mind. So we feel we're truly taking refuge in our potential. What Steve talked about the other evening, taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the the Buddha, that's taking refuge in our own potential. It doesn't have to be a historical person or a person that lives today. It's really taking refuge in our own potential. It's taking refuge in the Dhamma, in our potential to know the truth. And taking refuge also in in the support that we get from our community, from our teachers, from those around us, the Sangha. So of these seven factors, there are three energizing. Investigation, effort or energy, and delight or that joyful interest. And it's balanced by the three stabilizing factors which are calm, concentration, and equanimity. And the last one, or the first one that is always on the list is mindfulness, but these, uh, this is the linking factor of all of the others. It brings them into a balance that makes it just right for once we for example, if we know that energy is there, if we bring mindfulness to energy, it tends to balance it out, so it's not too much or not too little. So the first one is mindfulness. We're talking about it most every day, so during the instructions. The, the instruction is all about mindful awareness, so I'm just going to be general here. It's not an easy quality to talk about because uh, we're usually experiencing the object of mindfulness and not mindfulness itself. So mindfulness turns towards the object and knows that object, and so we experience the object of mindfulness mostly. But here we're beginning to know mindfulness itself. We're beginning to understand mindfulness of mind, knowing what's going on. We're beginning to know the qualities of mindfulness, the characteristics when it's present. For example, I just want to go through one of the qualities or characteristics of mindfulness, and that's a quality called non-negligence. Non-negligence is, in a way, a different version of remembering. Remembering to be mindful. Sati is the Pali word of mindfulness. Pali is that ancient language. And it means remembering. And it also can um, describe a sense of non-negligence there's a word in Pali, Pali called apamada, non-negligence. One time in a whole course, that was a theme, non-negligence. So we can't um, give it enough light. Almost, it's, it feels like we, you know, we're repeating and repeating. Please be continuous. But imagine in one whole two-month course, the theme being non-negligence, mindfulness, remembering to be mindful, not just of the present moment, not just a careful connection to the present moment, but of one's surroundings too, kind of being mindful of what's going on in here and a general mindfulness of what's going on out there. In the Dhammapada, a collection of sayings of the Buddha, one of them says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the, tr- the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. This is what gets us through life in a deeper way. Not the kind of mindfulness that helps you cross the street and not get run over by something, but the kind of mindfulness that knows deeply the nature of life and enables us to live in alignment with it, not going against it, not fighting it. When someone has a quality of careful mindfulness about them, it stands out much more than their physical appearance, much more than their role in life or what we know of their material wealth, much more than their status in society. When someone is mindful or feel you have a sense about them that they really pay attention to life. They're really sensitive to what goes on around them and sensitive to their own heart. This shines forth. This is what uh, the Dhammapada calls the precious jewel, the shining jewel. You get a sense that it's a quality that doesn't just stand by as a witness. Sometimes when people talk about w- mindfulness, they say, Oh, the witness part of me was there, you know. But that's not the whole thing. It's not just witnessing what's going on as being non participatory, it's more like this participatory awareness in life. It's feeling that, a feeling that. One participates in the quality of life, yet doesn't get caught up in it. Doesn't get caught up in either what's wholesome or unwholesome of what's going on. But knows, participates, knows, understands, responds when needed. So this is a kind of participatory awareness. It's not distant or removed. Sometimes people think, oh this is like really being in life, having that kind of passion where you're indulging in it, so much so that you're identified with it. But this is not so. This is kind of one end, the deep end of that spectrum where you're kind of lost in it, but not really aware of it. And of course the other end of the spectrum is denying what's going on, you know, being a witness so much, standing back, that you don't even, um, you really don't understand what's going on, you can't acknowledge what's going on, there's a denial. So on one side is there is indulgence and the other side is kind of a blind denial. But this kind of awareness is very alive and down-to-earth and honest yet fully and carefully being mindful of what's happening in the moment, within, and around one. And it's another reason why I try to do the equanimity practice in that way. Just kind of recognizing what's going on in the situations around oneself, and then also knowing what's going on inside oneself, and making that kind of uh, they meld together somehow, but seeing them also distinctly, so that they're clear, really clear, refined. So there's an example, an experiential example I had of seeing a person in this participatory awareness and really um, recognizing, oh, that's what that is. That's what that kind of non-negligence is. When I was at um, a big gathering of uh, teaching, in a Tibetan teaching, Rigpa teaching, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and this was when he won the Nobel Prize in 1989, we were in San Jose, and there were thousands of people in this stadium, and um, His Holiness was doing some very sacred chants, and I'm not. Um, schooled in Tibetan Buddhism, but I really honor and respect that tradition. And I love being around the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, so I went to that with some other Dhamma friends, and uh, he was there chanting in the beautiful way that he chants, the Tibetan chants, going on and on in in that kind of voice and that kind of um, cadence that you hear. and. And some people started getting up, and um, I was wondering, where are they going, you know? and Well, it had been a long time, and I thought, well, they have to go to the bathroom, you know, they have to take a break. And he wasn't giving teachings in English, so they were standing up, getting leaving. And His Holiness, who was really paying attention to the chanting, but he, he looked up, and he saw what was going on. And he stopped that sacred chanting, and he said in English, bathroom, (laughs) anybody go to bathroom? And so people were saying, yes, yes. So he stopped his chanting. He got up too, to go to the bathroom, (laughs) aware of the surroundings, aware of what was going on within him. And he just had that uh, attendance, that careful attending. To what was going on in his environment, what was going on in his heart, and really connecting, really paying attention to that. I really appreciated that, and I felt like it gave me the permission to just do that myself, you know, to be able to interrupt whatever I have to interrupt for something practical. So this kind of attention sometimes is called bare attention, this mindful attention, because it's without any lens. It's not with the lens of having a bias to something, liking or disliking something, not with the lens of adding anything to it or distorting. Um, It's like a clean, clear mirror The 4th century Taoist, Chuang Tzu, says, The perfect woman or man uses the mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep. So this is the sense we get about mindfulness. It receives the experience. Mindfulness doesn't try to go out to catch it. It just receives and reflects what's going on clearly. And then that experience is recognized very clearly because there's nothing added to it. There's no refusal of it, pushing away, and there's no distorting of it. This is bare attention. And I would hear it in Manindra's voice and in the words he would use all the time. We don't necessarily use those words, uh, but he would say, Be mindful of whatever is predominant in your experience without comparing, without commenting, without criticizing, without condemning. Just be mindful. Do not distort or deny or add anything. Just be mindful. Those were the kinds of instructions that we got in the very beginning. But not only to be mindful to remember to be mindful, to remember to bring your attention over and over again to the experience. But as Utejaniya points out, one of our teachers, he says, awareness alone is not enough. It's really not mindfulness or awareness that's going to free the mind from suffering, going to free the mind or uproot the defilements that keep the mind stream unpure and unclear. But sati or mindfulness's function is to reflect the present moment so deeply, so profoundly, without any lens at all, that it clearly reveals the wisdom, that's the seeds of wisdom that are inherent in our mind stream within all of us. And this is the, this wisdom liberates the mind. So it's mindfulness that kind of reflects what's going on. But wisdom, we'll talk about that more later, is another factor. And this wisdom is what liberates the mind. Not mindfulness. Mindfulness is the key though. So we think, oh we'll just be mindful with the present moment and that is enough. That isn't enough. It's more than that. It's much more than being aware. So that's mindfulness or awareness, the linking factor. And the second one is the beginning of the energizing factors. And this is investigation. Investigation is activated by mindfulness. Sometimes you'll hear us saying, connect and sustain the attention on the experience, whatever the experience is. So the connecting, you might say in one way, this is my experience, the connecting with the experience is the first part of the energy that brings mindfulness there. Connecting with the experience. And then sustaining the attention on the experience brings about that investigation. It's bringing it so close the attention or mindfulness comes so close to the experience that that kind of investigation, knowing the experience deeply, can be known, can be experienced. So it's not just, oh, okay, this is hearing, and what's next, you know, and go on to the next thing. It's really staying with it for that nano-moment, that micro-moment, to experience that very clearly. sustaining the attention and i'm just meaning for a little moment at a time so it's investigation of the present moment it's not investigating what we learned before or investigating some experience of the past or what could be in the future it's investigating the present moment's experience anything else is not investigation in this sense of the word in this uh, in these seven factors Uh, as you're doing your practice as you're doing your moment to moment practice so it's not by thinking of the whys and wherefores of what's going on it's not by um, you know ruminating about it it's by fully experiencing that moment in our practice. Sometimes of course we may talk about our spiritual practice and we're investigating that way and kind of an intellectual way and that's fine but sitting down and doing our practice connecting and coming close to it as close as we can without getting caught in it really uh, helps us to know the experience clearly. So I want to give you an example of um, thinking about something and thinking that uh, that was investigating it. So one time I was in practice, early on in my practice, and I was having some experiences. And I was telling Sayadaw Upandita about those experiences. telling him that I was investigating the experience in this way and that way and understanding them to be, oh this is, um, this fire element is like the sun and this cold element is like the water in the, you know, in the ocean and this, how the elements are related to nature and all of that. And it was actually, it felt, you know, like very, very deep to me. But he said, if you continue in this way, you will go backwards because it was, it was investigating it in the wrong way. I started thinking more about it and putting meaning to it that it didn't need to have in that moment. And he said um, in his own ways and subsequent to that, he's told me this for, for different situations, he would say, withdraw your energy from the thinking. And from the content of the thinking, and put all of that energy into the direct onto the direct experience of that whatever is being experienced, to the heat element, or to the um, the water element, or to tightness or tension. Don't think about it. Just be with that moment. In other words, when it could. Happen in that way, then deeper understandings could come. The ability for the mind to see the arising of that moment, the changing nature of that moment, the passing away of that moment, that led to deeper, the the connecting and sustaining in that way led to that deeper understanding. The wisdom factors of Anicca, of Dukkha, of Anatta, talking about that more later on. So be careful with investigation because it could really lead to a spinning out if you think about things too much. Even if you think about spiritual, if you think it's a spiritual thought, um, if you can just be with your moment-to-moment experience, this is the best in terms of our sitting meditation and our walking formal meditation. If investigation is weak, a lot of doubt arises. That means when mindfulness is weak too, then we have doubt in our practice, and it paralyzes us. It paralyzes us when we think too much about practice too. We don't want to go on. We we kind of um, are like a dog chasing its tail, and we get spun out. So. <clears throat> That's investigation. The second energizing factor is effort or energy. We're talking about this every day, so I'll just say it in brief. It's not the energy to change something. Oftentimes we think, oh, if if I bring mindfulness to this experience, it will change. It'll change by it'll go away. (laughs) Or if I bring mindfulness to something pleasant, maybe it'll stay longer. But uh, this is not the effort to change, to get rid of, or to gain anything. It's just the effort to experience that moment. So this is a really important um, point that we keep uh, putting light on every day. Just keep continuous and you don't have to um, you don't have to go at it like a, a warrior. You can go at it like just in a sense of lightness. Many, mom- uh, just many short moments of mindfulness, moment after moment. If there's too much energy, you'll become restless. And if, there's, if the energy is too lax, you'll become tired and sleepy as well. Restlessness also leads to tiredness and sleepiness. So it can't be too much or too little. The third energizing quality is delight. Sometimes it's called joyful interest. In Pali, it's called piti, P-I-T-I. And sometimes this is translated as rapture. It's an uplifting feeling. Um, rapture is described in the texts as like you're walking through a desert and your mouth and throat are parched with thirst. and you see an oasis of water in the distance. And because you see that oasis, you know you, the energy rises, and you feel like you before feel like you were all tired out, and now you feel like, oh, you could keep going. The the quality of mind that's going on at that time is there's a kind of a lightness and you begin to see the agility of the mind during that time. It's characterized by delight. Whatever the mind sees, there's kind of delight in it. Sometimes the whole body feels suffused with energy. Sometimes it's parts of the body. There might be a feeling of energy, it could be warmth in the body, it it could even be coolness or whatever sensation is happening, but it feels like there's energy in the body and it could be, for many people, it's pleasant, but if it keeps going on, it can be unpleasant. Um, The rough and the gross, painful sensations become very soft, they become very smooth, they become very gentle. And we may feel this rapture at different times, and then it goes away, and we want it back. Um, we can feel like floating, like rocking, like the body can feel like swaying. But if you open your eyes, the body's not moving. It's very pleasant. So these ki- this kind of rapture is where we can get caught up. Uh, Seda Upandita calls them meditative goodies. (laughs) But we really can get um, attached to them and we can talk about them as if they're the greatest thing in the world and maybe my teacher hasn't even experienced these things. Only I have experienced them. (laughs) Sometimes reports like that happen. And The teacher would always ask you, Is there attachment to this experience? (laughs) And some of the times it's denied because we're really being mindful, but underneath there is really, there could be some attachment that can't see because there's so much identification with I am really experiencing this rapture. So that's the problem with um, that, when we get very attached to it and not know. So those are the energizing factors, Um, investigation, energy, and joyful interest. The three stabilizing factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. So remember I told you that. This joyful interest, or PT is like walking in the desert and feeling parched with thirst. But you see an oasis in the distance and you know, ah, I can get there. So the energy rises and we keep going. And where, when we get there and we drink of that water, then you really feel a difference between this PT and this calm. And you think, wow, the PT was so gross compared to this calm. And why was I hanging on to that rapture when this calm is so much better? So it really feels that the body goes, really relaxes into that calm. But things are still clear. Um, the body and the mind feel Relieved at that, at those times. This is when rapture begins to smooth out. Restlessness, we didn't think there was restlessness, but now in looking back, we say, oh, there was quite a bit of restlessness in the body, in the mind, but now it's absent. We see the calming factor happening. It's not disturbed. It's not a dull calmness that we feel when we're kind of sleepy and, you know, we kind of. Um, We're not so clear, but it's a very clear kind of calm. The mind is settled and not scattered, very bright. It's characterized by a coolness and ease of mind. It stays there even when we're moving. So these are some things to notice in your own practice. So we can move through a room and it's not brittle. It's not a brittleness. We can move through a room and still feel that calmness. It's still quite delicate. um, And during this time, concentration can be developed more easily. We feel with calm that there's a lot of surrender. You know, things come into view, and there's surrender to it. Not the kind of equanimity, which is more total surrender. But we feel a difference in the way we can accept this moment just as it is. We begin to feel that difference. So that's calm. The second stabilizing factor is undistracted attention or concentration. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of vipassana concentration. Vipassana concentration is different than pure samadhi, or concentration on one object. Vipassana concentration is mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness on changing experience, changing objects. So it's said and experienced that the fourth degree of concentration, or up to the fourth jhana, can be experienced through um, Vipassana Uh, the changing experience of Vipassana, concentration on changing experience through Vipassana. What does concentration do? It takes the energy and gathers it, all this energy of energy, investigation, calm, it gathers it and it collects it so that it goes on that moment, on this changing moment. Not on the moment that we want to keep there, but on this particular changing moment. And it sees it so clearly that it, kind of, it, it helps to keep everything else at bay, so nothing comes in to that experience. No, none of the defilements come in so boldly or so energetically that it moves the attention and the clarity away from that moment. So that moment is seen very, very clearly. This is the uh, power of that kind of concentration. It steadies the mind, the strength of the mind, all in one stream in that moment. It's not dissipated or distracted. The function of concentration is to collect the mind and stream it in, into that area. So the hindrances are kept at bay, and um, the moment is seen. The experience is known very clearly. However, with this kind of Vipassana concentration, it can shift to another object easily. It's not that kind of concentration that just holds on to an object, which you have to do with some kind of Samadhi practices, that just stays with it all the time. And then when something happens, the mind is so brittle that, we get kind of spun out. But it's a kind of concentration that's very flexible, that can go from one object to another, because really it knows that that's its job, to do that. When there's too much concentration and not enough energy, we experience what is called a sinking mind, where we feel clear, very clear, knowing what's going on, very clear, oh, it gets very pleasant. And then all of a sudden, boom we're out <laughs> and wonder what happened you know there was a lot of energy it was going okay and then all of a sudden what happened and this is um, this is not sleepiness um, it's sinking mind it's a very different phenomena and we kind of know it from what happens beforehand what we hear beforehand or what we know of our own practice beforehand so that's concentration. And the last of the stabilizing qualities is equanimity. What we're talking about I started to talk about this afternoon. It's called the Doorway to Peace because this equanimity is the factor that is really most strong uh, right before the mind enters the unconditioned. It's a balanced, spacious stillness. This is experiential. This is not kind of like a textbook um, description of it. It's what people describe, what we can describe of it ourselves. It stills the mind before it falls into extremes because of the absence of reactivity. There's no reactivity, so the mind feels very open, balanced, spacious. Receptive. It can take in changing objects without getting thrown about. So within equanimity, it isn't like calm where things stay fairly steady. Within equanimity, there can be a lot of ups and downs, a lot of comings and goings, but the mind doesn't get ruffled at all by it. It stays so, it's a deeper kind of stillness and a bigger kind of space that feel the mind is, and heart is in. The, um, all kinds of pleasant, unpleasant experience, feeling can arise during certain periods of practice and it doesn't turn... unpleasant doesn't turn into aversion or doesn't, isn't the cause and condition for aversion to arise. Pleasant does not become the cause and condition for grasping to arise. There's no reactivity in that sense either, because the deepest reactivity is when pleasant is there, and the reactivity to pleasant is attachment. When unpleasant is there, the reactivity to unpleasant is aversion. So this kind of reactivity does not take place on the very deep levels of the mind. No attachment arises. No aversion arises. Possibly pleasant, unpleasant arises, and neutral experience, but attachment, aversion, delusion do not arise. The mind is very clear and free of those basic hindrances. So this is why it's a very pristine experience of the mind and the doorway to the unconditioned. It's felt sometimes, experienced sometimes like raindrops on uh, a slightly sloping lotus leaf. It doesn't stick at all. Something comes into the mind and rolls away. Sometimes I've I've understood this as it's like mercury. You know how it just rolls up and it it doesn't stay anywhere. It just rolls around and it may come into view but it doesn't stick. Sometimes, some of you know this from uh, John Kabat-Zinn's teaching, it's sometimes like a mountain. You know, we feel the body-mind feels like a mountain, feels very steady when equanimity is there. Things can come and go, but the mind-body stay very steady with whatever comes, whatever changes, whatever goes. The Buddha says, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of suffering. So it's with this total connection with all of life. You know, life is connecting very deeply, and yet the mind isn't reacting with any kind of unbeneficial uh, experience unwholesome experience. There's clarity. There's a connection. There can be a caring with what goes on. So in practice we go in and out of some forms of equanimity, but that very deep equanimity is developed through continuity of practice and through really developing all of these uh, factors of enlightenment. It's a very exalted state of mind. It cuts through a lot of delusion because equanimity sees things, helps to see things as they really are. And it says it bears the fruit of liberation. So these are the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyful interest, calm, concentration, equanimity. And all of these are the seeds of awakening that are happening in our own lives as we go about with our um, aspiration to really awaken, to fully awaken. And just to end with the same verse from the Buddha, you are the light You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. So let's sit for a moment with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.